Thank you so much. That was so beautiful. I love how all the words go so well with this lesson. It's really remarkable. My name is Misty Denman, and I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I really am so glad to be with you here this morning. And I have to tell you that I was so inspired by Vanita's funny um, Noah's they were mostly about Noah jokes last week, and I thought, well, I'm going to learn some good Noah jokes and come up and tell them to you. I can never remember a joke, ever. So I Googled it about a week ago, and really what I came up with was pretty lame and pretty corny. And so every day this week, I would go back when I was sitting down at the computer and Google Noah's Ark jokes. I guess I was thinking that somebody overnight thought it would be really a great way to spend their day to put up a web page of funny Noah's Ark jokes. That did not happen. I also tried to um, Google flood jokes. Nobody thinks floods are funny. There are no flood jokes. <laughs> so I came up empty-handed, except I do have one small one for you that at the very least you can tell maybe your kids or grandkids. So it's this. What animal did Noah not trust? The cheetah. Okay, you laugh more than I thought you would. That's great. Thanks. Even if it was just a sympathy laugh, thanks. So I've been really struck this week as I have been studying Noah, and really over the course of this whole study of Genesis, how relevant these ancient stories are, particularly I think these very earliest stories of mankind somehow can seem very removed from our lives can seem almost mythical because they're so different from what we have experienced. But here is what I've discovered. Noah was a man, even though he lived thousands of years ago, and is really separated from us by culture and time, has a lot in common with us. Here is a guy who struggled to live in a culture that was very different from what he believed, who struggled to do what he knew was right, who... Um, was a hero of our faith and yet was just as human as we are and had to work through all of the things that told him in the same uh, that God told him in the same way we have to so i've really enjoyed finding a connection with these ancient heroes of our faith. And he is a hero of the faith. And the more I learn about him and this flood story, the more I think that is somebody I want to be like. So let's just go ahead and dive right in. There's so much good material in chapter 7 today. So if you would, open up your Bibles with me and let's read Genesis 7. And let's just start with reading verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, Forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 
So Noah, at the beginning of chapter 7, is making final preparations for the flood. And that very first word we read in chapter 7 is the word then. And anytime we read that word then, we know that that word links something that came before it with what is coming after. And when it comes at the very beginning of the chapter, we need to go back, especially if it's been a week since we studied it, and look at what comes right before it because it is important. So look with me on your verse sheet at Genesis 6.22 and Genesis 6.9. That is what comes right before that word then. Genesis 6.22 says, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. And a little earlier in chapter 6, we learned that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So last week when we studied chapter 6, we learned that Noah was a man of uncompromising faith and obedience. Both his heart and his actions are perfectly summed up in this last verse of 622 that comes right before that linking word then. We know that that Noah was a man who walked with God, who obeyed God, and who built the ark according to to God's exact instructions. Then... God speaks personally and directly to Noah. He says, essentially, Noah, it's time now. It's time to get on that boat. That flood that I told you about and I warned you about is almost here. Take your family with you and you'll all be safe. So the second conversation between God and Noah comes 120 years into Noah's obedience to God in the building of that ark. And remember that it's this enormous ship on dry ground in the middle of no kind of water for a coming flood that probably could not have been well envisioned by Noah or anybody else for that matter. I can imagine that there must have been days or maybe even weeks or months or years of Noah's life where he felt completely alone and he was treated with contempt and scorn. But I wonder how quickly all of those feelings melted away when God comes back to him again and says, essentially, Noah, I see you. I see what you've been doing. I see that you are a righteous man before you. And that plan I've told you about, I am putting into place now. And you and your family will be safe, just like I said you would. And Noah continued that pattern of believing God and trusting him completely. So what's that first visual memory that most of us have when we hear Noah's Ark? For me, and maybe for you too, it's that picture of the animals coming on the Ark two by two. And almost every retelling you hear of the flood story starts that way. And the animals came onto the Ark two by two. And that's mostly true, but God tells Noah at the beginning of this chapter to bring with him seven pairs of all the clean animals. And so in our homework this week, we looked into Leviticus at What were the clean animals and the unclean animals, and why were there distinctions between them? And in Leviticus, Moses carefully lays out for God's people these distinctions between which animals are clean and unclean, and the clean animals were to be used for sacrificial offerings, and they were also allowed to be eaten. Now, that law had not yet been given at the time of this chapter, at the time when God is talking to Moses, But Moses clearly knows what these clean and unclean animals were. So at some point, God had communicated this to him, and he already knew those distinctions. God's purpose in making these clear distinctions 
between the clean and the unclean animals was to remind his people that he was a holy God and he wanted his people to be holy and set apart as well. And later as the the nation of Israel forms, God will ask his people to be set apart from those pagan nations around him. They will be called to be separate and distinct from those around them. They were to be holy as their God was holy. And their dietary laws, among other laws that were given, were just one of the ways that God showed them that he was holy and they were to be holy. So by God's specific instruction, Noah takes with them seven pairs of clean animals. Some of those animals after the flood will be used for sacrificial worship. Some will be eaten. And of course, one pair needed to remain so that that species could continue on. And even though God categorizes some animals as clean and some as unclean, I want you to remember that in Genesis 1, he calls all of his creation good. And God does have a plan to keep and preserve all of his animals through the flood, along those clean along with those unclean. So onto the ark, the, go, the animals go. And I want you to really imagine that and how the sovereignty of God would be so on display as those animals enter the ark. Can you imagine every animal from the elephant down to the bumblebee in pairs drawn like a magnet onto this boat? That would have been something that only God could have done. There would have been no way for a man to gather up all of those animals in pairs and get them on the boat before some of them, the first ones on, started dying. So it was something that could have only been done by the hand of God. And no one knew that was happening. God told him that that was the plan all along. But to actually see it must have been a really fearsome thing. And you know that all of the people around him saw this happening too and had to wonder what was going on with all these animals coming from far and wide and getting on the ship It had to catch their attention, but their corruption was so complete that it did not seem to make any difference to them. It didn't seem to matter. They went on about their lives, too wrapped up in their own agendas and sin to really notice when the hand of God was so visibly at work right in their midst. So the animals embark, and they're shut in snugly in their spots in safety, They would be safe and provided for, and now it is time for Noah and his family to get on board as well. It will be as God has commanded because Noah continues his commitment to obey God without compromise. So Noah walks by faith here, and he and his family get on this boat that's on dry land, that's not near any water, But Noah had God's word, and he had had it all these years. God had told Noah exactly what was going to happen and why it was going to happen twice already, both in chapter 6 and again here in chapter 7. But I don't think there was probably any way Noah could truly envision what was about to happen. And so what he had to do was trust God and take him at his word and just do what God said, even though he couldn't exactly visualize what this coming flood would look like. Look with me on your verse sheet at Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my fat path. Noah had begun walking this path with God years before, and he is still staying on that path. I love how steady and faithful he is. 
Noah building the ark and now getting onto it with all those animals and his family required him to take God at his word and to trust God in his word even when the strange situation he found himself in was hard to understand, was a situation for which there was no precedence, but Noah allows God to be his light, his only light for this strange path. Had Noah listened to his own doubts or listened to the doubts of the world that had to have bombarded him year after year, he would not have found himself inside of this place of refuge when the flood came. And I think it is totally possible that Noah had to combat his own doubts and his own internal fears during the years of building the ark. I can imagine him over all those years falling into bed at night after hard manual labor thinking, what in the world am I doing? What am I doing here? And the only thing that would have gotten him out of bed the next morning, the only thing that would have kept him going day after day, year after year, in the face of his own doubt and the doubt of those around him would have been clinging to God's word that God had told him what to do and why to do it and he just had to go back to God's word over and over. God's word guided Noah in all that he did and we can trust God completely and take him at his word as well. The same God that Noah worshipped is the one that we worship today. And if we ever find ourselves in a place of doubting that God will do what he says he will do, I think this chapter, actually all of chapters 6, 7, and 8, is a great place to go back to, to remember that God is who he says he is and does what he says he will do. So verses 6 through 10 are summary verses of what comes before and after in this chapter. So we are going to skip down to verse 11 and pick up the story there and follow along with me as I read verses 11 through 16. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the deep, of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. In chapter 6, God told Noah that this flood was coming. He told him why it was coming and what Noah needed to do about it. In these verses, God's final plan for the preservation of Noah and his family entered their last stage. So before we talk more about that, I'd love for you to notice the amount of detail that's given in these verses. Our author, Moses, is making it very clear here that Noah's personal history and the account of this flood and its aftermath are real, historically accurate events that actually took place at a very specific point in time in history. You know, when my kids were in the children's ministry here at Christ Chapel, they were taught a saying 
that the Bible is God's true word and everything in it really happened. I love that and I love it for us because the Bible is God's true word and everything in it really did happen. It's just as relevant for us as it is for our children and I've loved that my children have been under the influence of that saying and I have to tell you this story that just a couple of weeks ago, I walked through the kitchen and my 10-year-old son, Owen, and husband were sitting at the table and my husband was telling they were having some conversation about how the whole word of God was true. And my 10-year-old said, nope, it's not all true. And I had that, in that pause, in that conversation, that moment of, oh, what have we done wrong here? That's such a fundamental, you know, part of our faith. And so he goes on to say, dad, the parables aren't true. The parables were these stories that Jesus made up to make his teaching easier. And I thought, yes, I'm so I'm not going to lie, that was a proud parenting moment. I've told you some of my not-so-proud parenting moments in other lectures, so at least I'll tell you one of my proud parenting moments there, because that is true. They were stories that God, that Jesus made up to make his teaching more clear. So Moses pinpoints the day that the flood began. Noah was 600 years old, two months, and 17 days. That is a pretty specific point in history. And, and Moses also carefully documents where all this water comes from. We're not just told that there was a flood. We are told the source of all of that water. Moses writes in very vivid detail in these verses, in very detailed language, I think to engage us in this very cataclysmic event and to help us understand that it was something that actually happened in history. Let's look at verse 11 a little more closely. Verse 11 says, all the fountains of the deep of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And some other translations will use wordings like the underground springs erupted and the floodgates of heaven were opened. Because of our multi-year drought, I think some of us try to think about what a really hard rain is and can't even remember it so much anymore. But I grew up on the Gulf Coast south of Houston, and lots of late summers, there would be these tropical storms that would come through. They wouldn't be hurricanes where you'd have to evacuate, but there would be these big storms that would come in from the Gulf. And I can remember that there would be in these storms a day or so of blowing wind and just the heaviest rain you have ever seen in your life, that kind of constant rain that just falls in those almost solid sheets that hurts if that if you're out in it, just stings your skin. And the kind that you don't want to drive in because your windshield wipers cannot work fast enough and where water just gushes down the street and into the storm drains. So there's that kind of rain. I think we can probably imagine that kind of rain. But what we're talking about in the flood would have been a kind of rain the likes of which no one had ever seen, has ever seen before, and certainly the people then had never seen before. And that rain didn't let up. It wasn't a day storm. It rained, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and what had been beautiful mountain streams and springs that were lovely babbling brooks broke open and gushed forth and erupted in this violent way in torrents. The earth cracked open and water was coming from every direction. And can you imagine the fear and the chaos as this began happening and then just didn't stop? Look with me on your verse sheet at Luke 17. This is Jesus speaking and he says, 
Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the sons of man. He's talking about when he will come back a second time. They, the people in Noah's time, were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So this flood comes and catches them unaware, and it would have been a completely catastrophic event, and they weren't unprepared because nobody had told them about it. They were unprepared because they had chosen not to listen to God's truth. So that's what's happening outside of the ark. Meanwhile, inside of the ark, there are the eight people, Noah and his wife, Noah and his wife's three sons and their spouses, and with them are the animals, And the wording in verses 14 and 15 that's used to talk about the animals that go on board with Noah is almost identical to the wording that's used in Genesis 1 when we studied it when God created the animals. So look back with me just at verses 24 and 25. It's on your verse sheet from Genesis 1. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Through the flood, God cleanses the earth from evil and violence, and all but a few of those magnificent animals that God created will be destroyed along with mankind. Those animals that God made by his own hand will suffer and die along with man, and that is a terrible uh, and ugly result of man's constant violence and sin. That almost identical language that's used in both chapter 1 and the flood story and chapter 7 shows that in many ways this flood story is a reversal of the creation story. What God had created, he is now choosing to destroy and then begin again. But he won't completely destroy what he has created. A small remnant of animals and a small but faithful remnant of mankind will be spared. And we'll get to continue on. Look back with me at verse 16. It says, And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. This is my favorite verse in all of this chapter. God is sovereign over all of creation. God commanded a pair of each species to get in that ark, and the animals obeyed. Noah and his family have also entered the ark by God's instruction of their own free will. And now what? The Lord shut them in. How gracious and kind was it of our God toward those who loved him and obeyed him. I don't know what Noah's plan was for how he was going to shut that door of the ark and get it sealed tight. I know he had a lot of time to think about it over those years that he built that ark. I'm guessing he had some kind of plan. It may have been, it would have needed to be shut from the inside. It may have been that he had some sort of maybe rope and pulley system. I'm guessing he anticipated that it would have been a very difficult job. It would have been important that that door was shut and sealed tight. It would have been the way he would have survived and the animals would have survived that flood. But it was a job he ended up not having to do because the Lord shut him in. And the Hebrew, the, you, the word that's used there for the Lord is Yahweh. It was the Yahweh God that shut them in the ark. And Yahweh is a very personal name for God that communicates many aspects of God's character. 
But the ones here that I think are important is that he is the creator and the sustainer of all that exists and that he is a personal God close to his people at all times. As Noah enters the ark, as the animals enter the ark, he's just right there with them. And it's his hand that shuts that door in. I also think it's a magnificent thing that it was God's hand that shut that door. Because as the flood comes and everybody else is out there panicked and dying, who is in and who is out is not on Noah. That choice was on God. There was a point in time at which God said, I'm shutting the door. Who is in is who is in and who is out is out. And that is on God. He took responsibility for that. And that is because he is sovereign. He, Noah, has been close, God has been close to and provided personal care and instruction for Noah throughout chapters 6 and 7. And I think it's never more evident than when God shuts the door of that ark right here. So I mentioned earlier that I grew up on the Gulf Coast, but my grandparents lived uh, for all my life in a really rural area about 150 or 200 miles directly west of here. I don't know which direction west is, west, west Fort Worth. And my sister and I, every summer growing up, would go and spend the first two weeks in June with them. And it seems like, maybe it didn't happen as often as I remember, but in my memory, there were always these huge early summer, summer storms that would roll across that west Texas sky. And my grandparents were very cautious people, and they lived in a house that probably would not have withstood a tornado. So I can remember so many times in early June, and it seemed like it was always in the evening, where there would be a forecast of these strong summer storms, and my granddad would stand outside and watch in the west and the north and watch these storm clouds roll in, and he would watch them very carefully because... If he thought they looked dangerous, we would all load up in their pickup and drive about a mile away to my great aunt's house who had an underground storm cellar. And so as a kid, I was never particularly worried about storms. I come from a long line of warriors, and I knew from a young age that everybody else was worrying enough for me, and I really didn't have to do the worrying. So I wasn't that scared, but there, they were, and there were lots of times that we would hop in the pickup truck and drive fast down that um, dirt road and go jump in the storm cellar. And I have this very vivid picture in my mind of sitting, going down the stairs of the cellar and sitting on this wooden bench across the back. And on this side were all these canned goods that my great aunt had canned in jars and other people from around. Some of them were family, some of them were neighbors because there weren't that many cellars. We would wait for them to all get in. And as soon as everybody that was coming would get down in the cellar safely, my granddad would walk back up the stairs. And by that time, often, there would be strong wind blowing in. You could hear it and you could hear leaves blowing around and that wind sort of whistling because the storm would have you know been close to starting by then and he would reach up and you would reach across like this and slam that cellar door shut and all of a sudden it was dark and it was quiet and there's just this strong sense of safety and quiet there and Everyone was in. He shut that door safely. He was the one that went up and sort of braved whatever was blowing around up there. But I was down in there shut in securely, and the dangers of the storm were not going to touch me. My granddad watched for that approaching danger every time a storm came up. He took his family to a place of refuge. He made sure everyone was tucked safely inside, and then he braved that wind and hail and rain. 
and swung that door shut and made sure we were safe. And he did that not once but many times in my childhood because he loved his family, he wanted to protect us, and because it was his job to take care of us. The wrath of God is about to literally pour out on those who had turned their back on God. But because Noah believed and trusted and obeyed God, for him and his family, it will be a different story. God had a plan to preserve them, and he shut them safely within that ark. Look on with me on your verse sheet at Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Then also look at the next verse with me in Nahum 1. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Noah was a righteous man who chose to take refuge in God. God provided the ark as a physical refuge for Noah, also as a spiritual refuge. And as we face fear and suffering in our own lives, we get to take refuge in God as well. So let's continue reading in verses 17. Let's look at verses 17 through 24. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. That language here paints a vivid picture. The floodwaters prevail over the earth. So there are, for most of us, I think, two very different versions of Noah's Ark and the flood story. There's this sweet version that is often represented something like this. Okay, that's what we know from Sunday school. Okay, actually, this picture just kills me because the animals are getting on the ark and there's a rainbow there, and that is not the way it happened. <laughs> and there were a lot of other ones that I looked at online that were so inaccurate theologically, but I chose this one because this is sort of a sweet picture. You know, you've got the pretty water behind them and the cute little ark and the animals all crawling on and the rainbow behind them. And that's what a lot of children's stories and our, our childhood memories of what Noah's Ark, thank you, look like to us. And that's okay because it's a great way to introduce this flood story to kids. And it's a great way to introduce Noah, who is absolutely a hero of our faith. 
But the realities in verses 17 through 24 tell a very different story. And in fact, I think most of the children's version of Noah's Ark sort of start with building the ark and the animals getting on and then kind of skip right almost over to everybody getting off and the rainbow happening. You don't see a lot of 17 through 24, and that's probably because most Sunday school teachers don't want to send their kids home with nightmares. But the reality was this was God's sweeping judgment over mankind's sin. And these verses describe the most devastating and horrific natural disaster that has ever happened in the history of mankind. For 40 solid days and nights, it rained and it poured and the water burst out of the ground and it gushed up and it up and it was terrible. And there was confusion and there was panic and there was terror and there was death. And some people would die quickly, and others, I would imagine, would, who could, would desperately seek higher ground, hoping they would be safe, only to find out that even the highest mountaintops were not safe. There was no place to escape. And I can imagine as those waters rose higher and higher, and those birds in the sky that had no place to land, who would fly and fly and eventually drop of exhaustion and um, die in those raging waters. And that... The whole thing was just horrific, unlike anything we can imagine. And I'm drawing these details out, not to be voyeurs and someone else's misery, because, but because I think it's important for us to understand the, the scope of the flood and what happened and why it was happening. That whole world, except for Noah and his family, were so entrenched in evil and corruption that we learn in chapter 6 that God was sorry he had ever made them. His heart was grieved over mankind's sin. And we often talk and think about God's love and mercy and forgiveness and patience and long-suffering and grace, and those things are absolutely true of him. But he is also a holy God, pure and unchanging and totally set apart from all of creation. Look with me at Revelation 4.8. This is a prophetic vision of God in heaven. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I think that gives us just a glimpse of his majesty, a little glimpse of his power and his holiness. Put that next to chapter 6, which describes man's sin as habitual, as deeply entrenched, and everywhere. And when we see that ugliness against the holiness and majesty of God, you get a little bit of an idea of why God was sorry he made man and why this flood was such an all-encompassing and devastating event. So the flood happens and every single thing outside of the ark was destroyed because God could stand man's sin no more. The flood literally washed the world clean. The world thought it could do as it pleased, ignoring God, but the world was wrong. God is holy and sovereign, and when he was ready to act, there was no one and no thing that could stop him. He had been patient all those years that Noah built that ark. And during that time, anyone who wanted to listen to Noah, anyone who wanted to turn to God and repent, had their chance to do that. But there was a day when that chance was over. That flood is an incredible visual picture of how much God hates our sin. 
So where does that leave us? Because we're all sinners too. But for those of us who believe by faith that God sent his son Jesus to die for the sins of the world, we have much to be thankful for this morning when we realize the depths of how much God hates sin. Look with me at Romans 6.23 on your verse sheet. This is a familiar verse to us, but it never gets old. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So outside of the ark was judgment. Inside of the ark, what was happening? While the waters were prevailing, the ark floated on the surface of the waters. Noah and his family and the animals they had with them were safe and alive. And no matter how dark and how smelly and how loud and how cramped that ship was, no matter how seasick some of those eight must have been, it was better to be inside of the ark than outside. When God gave Noah his marching orders to build that ark, he also gave a promise to Noah, a promise of their safety. And can you imagine Noah replaying those words over and over in his mind during those 40 days of that terrible flood and the terror of what was happening, of an experience that he couldn't have imagined before, of something that he really had no way to know what would look like afterwards. He must have had to hold on to and cling to those promises of God as that boat just rose higher and higher and higher. You know, we talked earlier about those years of shipbuilding and how Noah had to constantly cling to God's word in order to keep making that daily choice to keep on building the ship. I think he probably had to do that same thing here, make that daily choice to remember, to obey, and to listen to God's plan. And he must have had to do that here when that world around him gave way. How scary would those days have been? And yet every step of the way, God walks by faith. Or Noah walks with faith with his God and not by sight. And God never failed Noah. The water that destroyed everything outside the boat did not touch Noah and his family. The violence of the water didn't start to break Noah's ship apart. You know, I was thinking this morning on my way in about how many shipwrecks there have been. I saw a map recently of shipwrecks that were just off of the Atlantic coast around Florida and then up around the Gulf Coast, and there were hundreds over the years of just that they know of, of ships that had been lost. Many of them were lost in storms. But that ship was not destroyed. That boat floated on top of the water the whole time, just as God had promised. So watch this progression here. Noah is a righteous man. He walks with God. He trusts God. He obeys God without compromise. And God is with him the whole way through. The reality is Noah lived in a hard and fallen world. He was surrounded by those who chose to reject God and reject him and his plan to follow God in life. And I know that made his life hard. So he's living through hard times here. And there were surely going to be more hard times to come as finally those waters recede. And he has to start his life all over again with nothing and no one around him. And who on earth wants to start life over at the age of 600? I can't imagine. It was something he was very excited about. But in his power and his sovereignty, God faithfully preserves Noah through the storm. Look at Psalm 46, 1 through 3 with me. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. If you get a chance this week, that psalm, Psalm 46, the whole thing, I wish I could have put the whole thing here, it's just a magnificent psalm. And I think it's so beautiful right alongside for, uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Genesis. So if you get a chance, just read that right along as you're studying chapter 8. I don't think you'll be sorry that you did. So contrary to the sweet storybook version of Noah and the flood, There are hard realities in Genesis 7, but there is also hope. We've moved this morning back and forth between what was happening outside of the ark and what is happening inside of the ark. Life out, life in. And God has simultaneously in this chapter both passed judgment on the sins of the world and saved those and delivered those who were his out of his judgment. He continues here to establish a kingdom of followers. We've seen him do that through the first seven chapters of Genesis and we'll continue to see that all the way through the Old Testament. That pattern doesn't stop. He is faithful and saving those are his. Like Noah, we have the opportunity to live under the safety and protection of God. The word of God is... And God himself is our refuge. The world around us is in many ways like it was in Noah's day. A hard day to live in, full of plenty of garbage and things that oppose the ways of God. And it can be hard and confusing and wounding to live in because of that. And the truth is the only safety we really have in living in this fallen world as followers of Jesus is to live under God's salvation and protection. Noah had God's word, and he listened to it and obeyed it by faith. And we have all of God's word available to us to go back to over and over again. And in it are the words of life. We get to find everything in it we need to know to obey God's will, even when we live in a world that bombards us with things that are not of the Lord. And like Noah, we will sometimes find ourselves in stuffy, smelly, gross, scary circumstances and in an unknown future. And like Noah, it is our job to fix our eyes on God, to listen to him and to obey what he tells us to do. And when we walk by faith and obedience, God will carry us through our storms. And we will be wiser and we will be stronger and our, and our faith will have grown for having walked through those storms alongside God who will never leave us and who will never forsake us. Praise God for that truth this morning. So let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the gift that it is to us. I thank you for your son, Jesus, who is our ultimate salvation. I thank you for these women here who love you and who are willing to study your word. I pray, God, that we would choose you in the midst of all of the choices we have, in the midst of all of the different messages of this world, that we would pick out what is yours and what is truth and live by that and that alone. I pray your blessing over these women as they go out into the world this week, God. In your holy name we pray. Amen.